Now, we've not had a good old-fashioned winter for a long time. I'm not complaining about that, by the way. I'm just saying it's been a long time since we've had a really good old-fashioned winter. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've had sort of a taste of what that used to be like. But if you've been around this area much at all, you know that we have had a, not had a winter where it's been snowy from December through March like it had been uh, in the past. Again, not complaining, just saying. That snow creates all sorts of problems. Now, to me, the greatest problem that comes with snow is having to drive in it. Now, because I've retired, I have to drive in it much less than I used to, which is also a good thing. But in spite of that, there are times you have to. And if you drive in the winter, you remember those times when uh, the, the snow begins to melt and the, the rain comes down or whatever, kind of like we had the last week or so, and the roads get slushy and dirty and all the salt's on there, like because I've been laying there for several days. So you're driving along and a truck comes the other way at you and from that other direction throws that salt and that slush and that mud all over your windshield. And so you turn on those windshield wipers and hit that button to get that fluid going. Hopefully you have enough in the reservoir to cover uh, cleaning off those windows. You get those windows all cleared off. You can see again, at least until the next truck, truck comes along, you have to do it all over again. That's what Job is going through right now. Job has been going through this difficulty in his life, this trial in his life. His mind has been clouded by the dirt and the slush of this tragedy, as well as by his three friends, in quote, who uh, have shown a total lack of empathy in how they approached him during this trial. Uh, Job's frustration, Job's pain have prevented him from always being able to think clearly about what has happened in his life. There are times when a person is going through trial, and if you've been through one, you know this, there are times when the anguish and the tears subside for a while. And your mind sort of comes clear as the wipers wash away the the windshield and and clear off all that dirt and sludge. Uh, The flashes of reality come back to your mind again. Even though that sorrow is still there and the burden is still there, for a few moments you can see clearly and speak more rationally about your trial than you've been able to in the past. That's what chapter 12 of the book of Job is all about. That's what's happened here. Job has been pounded by his three friends over and over and over. He's been so consumed with his own pain and his grief, he's not been able to directly deal with the attacks that he's endured from these three friends. And so his answer to them had been more out of frustration, kind of a pouring out of of his anguish, as opposed to any real response to what they said to him. But now in chapter 12, for the first time, the wipers have cleared away the windshield And Job can respond to these guys, create a defense of himself in a calm and clear and calculated manner. And that's what our study in the book of Job is about today. That is what chapter 12 is all about. So beginning in verse 1 through verse 6, we have what we'll call, uh, Job addresses the absence of wisdom. The absence of wisdom. Look at verses 1 and 2. And Job answered and said, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Now, you can just hear the sarcasm in Job's voice as he says that. Uh, What he basically says is, you're the man. You know exactly what you're talking about. You've got all the answers. Uh, You've got everything going on as far as these responses. But underneath that sarcasm, Job has really correctly identified the problem. Uh, These three friends think that they have godly counsel, that they've given him godly counsel. But in fact, they've not done that at all. They think they're dispensing great wisdom, when in fact, what they actually lack is great wisdom. And Job finally has clarity in his own mind, and for the first time, he can take them on and confront this lack of wisdom that they displayed to him. So look at verse 3. He says, But I have understanding as as well as you. I am not inferior to you, yea, who knoweth not such things as these? Even as he confronts these friends, he also says to them, What you're saying is true. There is some truth in what you're presenting here. Job confirms the truth of the statements they make. He also lets them know that's not anything he didn't already know. They've not given him any new knowledge whatsoever. Job was a righteous man. The Bible tells us that in chapters 1 and 2. He walked with God. He had a good understanding of God's truths. 
And as a result, up to this point, he has heard nothing new from them whatsoever, nothing that would help him in the time of his trial. Verse 4. I am as one mocked of his neighbor, who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just upright man is man rather is laughed to scorn. Now that may be a little confusing at first glance. Job compares himself here as somebody who has been mocked by his neighbor. And what he says is, I've called upon God, but my neighbor has answered me. And instead of getting answers that I that have any value, Job feels he's been mocked and laughed at by those who have answered him. In other words, Job has called upon God to explain his calamity, but instead he's heard from his neighbors, these three friends. And all they have done is mocked him and laughed at him, in a sense, rather than help him. With all the talking that they've done so far, and there's been a lot of talk, there's been very little contributed to him to help him in this time of need. Look at verse 5. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. Job compares himself to a lamp. He says those who are at ease, those who are resting, have no need of a lamp. If you're resting with your eyes closed, there's no reason to leave a light on, unless, of course, you're like Steve and are afraid of the dark, then maybe you'll leave that light on. But otherwise, you've no reason to do that. Steve, I'm glad you sit right there in the front row so I can just keep firing away at you when I need to. It's, it's a good thing. So Job sees himself ready to slip. And as a result, he sees himself as useless and unnecessary to others, just as a lamp is useless to somebody who's resting with their eyes closed. Job sees no reason whatsoever why anybody would pay any attention to him since he's on his way out anyway. Now, I want to remind you of a verse, I'm sure you know it, in Psalm 119, verse 105. That verse says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I'm going to shock you this morning, so prepare yourself for it. I'm going to have to move this out of the way. Sorry, move it around here. I broke it. I just broke the thing, you know. We'll get some glue later and fix that. I want to shock you this morning. There are some people who are believers who care nothing at all about growing in Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're sitting down for that. There may be somebody in this room, there may be somebody listening by Facebook or or YouTube today, who has no concern whatsoever about growing in Jesus Christ. They are at ease, so to speak. They're just happy to be saved. They know they're saved. They know they're on the way to heaven. They have no concern whatsoever about anything beyond that. They have no desire whatsoever to grow in their Christian walk. They have their eyes and their hearts focused on other things, on, and growing in Jesus Christ is simply not a high priority for them. And so, as I say, those believers, we could call them, they're at ease. They're not growing in their Christian walk and are making no real effort to do so. And because of that, Practically speaking, the word of God is useless to them, has no effect whatsoever. In fact, let me tell you, one of the best ways to tell if we are backsliding or not is to check how much time you're spending on the word of God. Your closeness to God is going to be gauged by how much time you spend in that book. If God's word becomes boring to us, if we have a difficult time getting into it or struggle to read it on a regular basis, folks, that's a sign of spiritual illness. Something's not right. Now, again, we may have all kinds of excuses for it, but that's the truth. And in the same way, if we have a strong desire for the word of God, if we match Job's words in Job 23.12, where we esteem the words of his mouth more than our necessary food, that's a sign that our spiritual lives are alive and vibrant and growing. God's word is truth, folks. 
But if we have no desire for it, it does us no good whatsoever, and we will never grow as believers in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if we choose not to get into the Word of God, don't be surprised when the trial comes and knocks us off our feet. Because our anchor is not in ourselves, our abilities, our skills. The anchor is in that book. (laughs) And if you're not in it, you're going to get knocked down by every word, by every wave, by every wind that comes along. That book is our stability. That book is our anchor in the time of storm. Now, God's word is truth. If you have no desire for it, there's a concern about your spiritual walk. Look at verse 6. The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. What's the word to describe Job's mood at this point? We could describe, describe Job's mood as frustrated. Job is simply frustrated. What Job is saying here is actually not true, but it sure seems that way sometimes. What Job is asking here is a question that many people have probably asked since time began. Why do the bad guys get all the breaks? Why do the bad guys and the wicked seem to have the nice cars and the big houses and the finer things of life? And here is this righteous man, God has called him that, a perfect man God has called him. Here the perfect man is, sitting in the ash heap, scraping his boils with a piece of pottery. Now, be honest with yourself, haven't you asked that same question from time to time? (laughs) Haven't you watched this world go on and watch who prospers and watch who doesn't and thought how unfair it all is that the guys who lie and cheat and steal and deceive others have the nice mansions and the fancy cars like the new Lexus, just saying, while some of the most sincere and godly servants of the Lord struggle to make men's eat and meat and provide for their families and don't have a Lexus, just saying. Every year I tell Sandy, she asks me what I want for Christmas. I say, I want a Lexus. I have not gotten it yet, Sandy. This is just kind of, I'm glad you're here this morning. Kind of let you know it's still up. The driveway is still empty, just so you know. Hold your hand there in Job chapter 12 and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. The great thing about the word of God is every question we have has an answer in this book. No matter what we might ask, there's an answer for us. And Psalm 73 answers the question that Job is asking that we might also ask ourselves. Because Asaph, the psalmist, expressed this great same sentiment in this psalm. Uh, we're, we're not going to read through the entire psalm this morning. If we did, you would hear him expressing this envy toward the wicked. Because they seem to have it all, while Asaph saw himself as having very, very little. But there's one thought that brought Asaph back to reality. It's found in verse 16. Psalm 73, 16. He says, when I thought to know this, when I thought to understand all this, it was too painful for me. Watch it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood I their end. What's he saying? He is saying no matter how much wealth a person accumulates, no matter how much of the goods a person may get for the wicked, that's all they're ever going to have. It's as far as it goes. Asaph realized that at their end, they lose it all. Asaph also understood in the same way that he would obtain his riches after he left this life. It doesn't matter how much a person has when they start out, folks. It doesn't matter how much they have during the time they're here. What matters, what does a person have at the end of life? When it all kicks off, what do they have then? And and according to what Paul says, when a believer ends his life or her life, they leave this world with riches and glory. Psalm Philippians 4.19 Don't ever envy what a person has here. No matter how much they may have, even if it's Alexis, don't envy that person. (laughs) You have riches waiting for you that you can't even imagine. 
If you are serving Jesus Christ here, if you're laying up treasure for in heaven here, you're going to wind up in heaven with more than you could ever imagine, and it's going to be more real and last longer than anything else you might obtain on this earth. It's all about priority. What's most important to us? So we can excuse Job for being a little confused here about what he's saying when he's dealing with the agony and the pain of his trial. But Job's point in all this is to show how little wisdom these friends really have, how they're full of the right words and full of, of, of spiritual talk, but they fail to understand the true nature of Job's sufferings or even the reason for them. Go back to Job 12 now. Beginning in verse 7 and going down through verse 11, uh, we move from the absence of wisdom to the illustration of wisdom. The illustration of wisdom. Look at verse 7. He said, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea will declare, shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Job's my three friends, have they lack wisdom. And now what he says to these guys is, fellas, what you need to do is look to creation and you'll see true wisdom illustrated for you. And in this, we have a truth repeated, repeated for us. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, the invisible things of, the, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says a person with no Bible who only has a conscience and creation, can have their sin revealed to them and their guilt before God shown to them. God has illustrated his invisible truths by means of creation through the things he has made and displayed for all to see. Why do you think they're trying to explain away how this world came about? They're trying to explain that away through some natural force because they don't want to see the truth of the creation. If they realize God made it, what they also realize is that God has a message for them and they don't want the message. They just try to explain the whole thing away. What Paul says is, as you look at creation, whoever does that is without excuse. Remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 19. The Bible tells us in that psalm that God has revealed his plan of salvation through the sun and through the stars. But that's not the only way God reveals truth to us. All of God's creation reveals God's invisible truths. In in these verses we're looking at here, Job points his counselors to the animal world as another way that God reveals his truth to us. So, what can we learn from the animals? Well, as you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God illustrates truth through animals. And the more that we know about these animals, the more that God will show us and reveal to us as far as his truth. And the Bible opens up to us in unexpected ways. Folks, again, nothing is in that book by mistake. Everything that is there is to illustrate or give us some truth that God wants us to know. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, we have a serpent. That serpent represents sin and Satan. It's no accident in Numbers chapter 21, when the people are murmuring against God, God sends serpents among them to judge them for their sin. And God tells Moses to put a serpent on a brass pole and raise that pole high above the people. And whoever looks on that brass pole will be saved and will be healed from the bite of that serpent. So Jesus Christ says this in John 3:14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. What he says is, I became sin for you. I was raised up. I will be raised up on a cross in payment for your sin. Bronze in scripture is a type of God's judgment. Our sin was judged by God in the person of Jesus Christ. Anybody who looks upon that cross will be healed from the sin that they were born into. That's just one example of how an animal illustrates the truth of God's word. But there's many others. Sheep, for example, are a type of God's people in Scripture. John 10, 
uh, verses 1 through 8. Oxen are a type of God's servants in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 9. False teachers and lost people are pictured as dogs and sows in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Philippians 3, 2, and Revelation 22, 15. We saw last week that a donkey is a type of a lost person. Uh, there are two lions mentioned in the Scripture, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lion who seeks to devour the devil himself. Birds are a type of unclean spirits in Scripture. I think that's why birds creep me out so much. Birds just kind of, I like to stay away from birds. In fact, that movie, The Birds, you know, the Hitchcock movie, one of the creepiest movies ever made as far as that. Just, those birds are everywhere. It just drives me nuts. When, when Isaiah describes hell in Isaiah 34, unclean birds appear there picturing demons. The birds of the air, we're told, are false teachers and false unclean influences will inhabit the church in the last days. Matthew 13, 32. False teachers and false prophets will inhabit the church in the last days. Be very careful who you listen to, folks. They may profess to be Christian. They may even read out of a Bible. They may even read out of a King James Bible. (laughs) Watch them. Be careful. God says they're going to infiltrate and they'll fool you without you even knowing it. We're told that in Song of Solomon uh, that the bridegroom is described as having dove's eyes. That bridegroom represents Jesus Christ, and we are his bride. You know, when you get saved, you get dove's eyes. Did you know that? You get spiritual eyes. You get the eyes of the Spirit of God. You can begin to see things through the Spirit of God who now dwells inside you, and you see things in a whole different way than you used to because those eyes change. God gives you new eyes to look through. Fish are also revelations to us. Men are compared to fish in the Bible. If you ever want to understand how to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, learn how to fish. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I tried twice, and all I got was wet bait. <laughs> I got nothing else. Uh, but if you want to learn how to lead people to Jesus Christ, learn how to fish. Jesus Christ told his disciples in Matthew 4:19, he would make them what? Fishers of men. Fishers of men. A fish revealed truth to us. You know what, folks? We are not called to save anybody. You can't save anybody. And although we say it, and I wouldn't argue with anybody who does, we are not really soul winners either. That's not a New Testament concept. You know what you are? You're a fisherman. That's what you are. You're a fisherman. You are just out there casting bait, just casting bait, and seeing who latches onto it, and whoever latches onto it, just reel them in. <laughs> That's what soul winning really is all about. If you take that, that term and use it that way, we are nothing more than people who take bait, the Word of God, and cast it out there and just see who grabs onto it. You know what? There's a lot of fish out there who will grab onto it if they just have the bait out there before them. The problem sometimes is we just won't cast out the bait like we need to. The call of every believer is to cast bait and win people uh, to the Lord through leading them to the Lord through uh, fishing for them as fishing for men. You know what you do? You know how you do that? You say all to Jesus. That's how you do it. When you're fully committed to him, you'll be the greatest fisher of men that anybody's ever seen. <laughs> just committed all to him. That's why we have this theme this year. As we do that, uh, we'll allow whatever God does in our lives to make us the fishermen that God wants us to be. So you see, folks, you've got a book in your hand this morning that has truth in it that you're not even aware of, that we're not even aware of sometimes. That book is God's written word to us, and there are copies of it laying around our houses we don't even look at from time to time. Here's the deal. Job didn't have a written word, and he knew the truth of God by looking at the creation. He knew truth that many believers are unaware of, even though they got Bibles everywhere in their home. God plainly reveals those truths to us, folks. 
And the reason that we don't know them, or oftentimes believers don't know them, is because even though they have a Bible, they don't read it. And those who read it won't study it. And those who study it won't believe what they read. And therefore, the word of God has not effect to them. Here's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, a sobering verse to me. Luke 12:48. for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. God's given you a book in black and white. Every word he wanted you to have in this book right here. God requires you to do something with it. And if you choose not to do something with it, God will require something else from you at the judgment seat of Christ. God has given us a book. Praise God for that. If people without the scripture like Job could study and learn God's truth, how much more will God expect of us who have the great privilege of having the word of God in our hands in written form that we can read? Preserved for us. How much more will we expect it from us? So Job summarizes all this in verse 10. Look at that if you would. Job chapter 12 and verse 10. He says that in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God is the creator of everything we see regardless of what they say. Paul said the same thing, Acts 17, 28. He stood on Mars Hill and told the people, speaking of God, in him we live and move and have our being. And since he's got the whole world in his hands, not much point in arguing with him because he holds it all anyway. You know, I have to, I don't laugh about it because it's really not funny, but I hear these little pipsqueaks out there, you know, mouthing off about God and, and ridiculing God and mocking God. They don't realize All God would have to do is squeeze them and all the breath goes out of them. (laughs) Just like that. He holds the soul of every person in his hand, can require it at any second. Just like that. And it only shows me the long-suffering and the mercy of God that he just doesn't do it. And i got to tell you, if I was God, (laughs) good thing I'm not. Good thing I'm not. For all kinds of reasons. (laughs) Now, what he tells his friends is this. You say you're speaking for God. You say that you're speaking in his place. But you have said nothing at all to help me in the time of my trial. And you have in no way helped me understand why this is all happening to me. And so what Job does instead is tries to rest in the truth that he knows who is in charge. And that's where he's going to keep his focus on the one he knows has control of all things. And that sets up what he says now in verse 11. He says, doth not the ear try words, and the mouth taste his meat? Job is accusing his friends of hearing without listening. Hearing without listening. Now, a lot of folks do that. It's a very similar kind of thing to someone who eats without chewing or without tasting their food. Eats so fast they can't taste it. Years ago, Sandy and I would go out with a couple to, out to eat every so often. Almost every time we did that, we'd get our food, and I would get my napkin in my lap, he had my fork and my knife ready. I'd look over. His food was gone. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he even chewed it. <laughs> it was just gone just like that. There is no way in the world that fellow tasted his food. And that really is what it is like for a person to listen without hearing. They don't get the meaning of what's being said. They may hear the words. They hear the noise. They don't get the meaning behind what's being said. And that's what Job's friends, what happened with them. Their ears are hearing Job's words, and they're taking in the sounds, but they're so busy coming up with ways to refute what he's saying that they really aren't listening to what he has to say. With all the wisdom God has placed around them, they are missing it all because they simply choose not to pay attention. And their lives are a warning to us. Whether we are aware of it or not, folks, God speaks to us every day. God speaks to you 
every day. God reveals his will to us moment by moment. You don't have to search out for his will, as we talked about Thursday night. You don't have to search his will. His will is available and prominent for you. We're just not listening. We're not hearing what he has to say to us. Whether we're aware of it or not, God is always speaking. Now, not in an audible voice like the charismatics would have us to believe, but God has a number of ways to get our attention and communicate his messages to us. Sometimes we are so busy trying to figure things out ourselves. Sometimes we get so confused on getting done what we want to get done and doing it the way we want to do it that we miss hearing from God. So focused on what we want to hear, we miss hearing from him. And I believe every believer, myself included, could profit from talking to God less and listening to God more. (laughs) Just hear what he has to say. Just be still and know that he's God. He'll speak. You'll hear him if you'll be still and just listen to what he has to say. And in doing that, we could truly understand what he's communicating to us about his direction for our lives. So Job has used creation as an illustration of the wisdom of God. Now, beginning in verse 12 and going down through the end of the chapter, we find Job pointing to the source of wisdom. God himself, the source of wisdom. Look at verse 12. It says, with the ancient is wisdom and in length of days understanding. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. Now, Job speaks here of the ancient. Job 12.12 transitions us to the one who is the source, to the one who is the source of wisdom. And beginning in verses 14 through 25, the he that Job speaks of is God himself. We're not quite sure, so sure who the he, who is speaking of this ancient in verse 12. Maybe Job has some specific person in mind, some person who lived a long time and spoke great truth. Maybe he's talking about God himself, giving him the title of the ancient, indicating the one who has great wisdom and understanding. So it's not clear who he's talking about in verses 12 and 13, but beginning in verse 14, it is very clear that Job is speaking of God himself, that one who is the source of all wisdom. Everything Job says about God can be illustrated in the history of the Old Testament. So beginning in verse 14, Job speaks of the awesome God, the awesome God. And I'm going to hop on my soapbox only for a second. For those who have not heard this before, that word awesome has been thrown around a great deal in the past days. It's attached to anything from a great hamburger to a great performance by an athlete or by an actor. If we want to be biblical, that word awesome can only be in reference to God and his word and his acts. God is the only one on earth who is awesome, who creates that kind of awe. And if we use any connection to anything else, we've taken that which refers to God and applied it to something that is far, 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 far less than him. I want to encourage you, keep that word reserved for him. The word of God does. Keep that word reserved for him. With that said, look at verse 4. I'm hopping off my soapbox now. Beginning in verse 14. Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. God is the only one who can break something down. So far, that can't be built up again. In Romans, uh, Revelation 18.2, that's what he promises to do to the, to the Antichrist kingdom, Babylon, at the end of the tribulation. And that's what he will ultimately do to any person who continues to challenge him or his word or his authority. I find it fascinating, as I said a minute ago, people on this earth who see themselves as all-powerful. They see themselves as the ones who have the supreme authority. And they may think that they can stand against God and are smart enough to back God down. What a foolish choice that is to make. Again, God is long-suffering. God is also a God of judgment. And when he is continually crossed, and when the long-suffering ends, he'll break down that one who has challenged him, and it's going to be impossible to rebuild them when that happens. And that may happen here. It will certainly happen when they face him at the great white throne. 
And Job says in this verse that when God shuts a man up, there's no getting him out till God is ready. Whether we're talking about judgment, whether we're talking about a matter of spiritual growth, however God does that, the process ends when God says that it will end. And that's why when we know people who are going through a trial, believers who are going through a trial, the bottom line for our prayers for them is that God's will would be done. And that the work that he wants to do in them will be accomplished through whatever it is they're going through. We will never, nor should we ever try to pray somebody out of their trial. Don't ever do that. The trial is God's work. And the trial ends when God has accomplished that work in them. And if we try to pray them out of that trial, we're actually praying to shorten the work that God wants to do in their lives, which would mean that they would not gain from the trial what God's designed for it. Our part in a believer's trial is to stay out of the way, ask God to comfort them and give them strength and help them understand what God is doing in the life, that, in the trial that they're going through at that point. Look at verse 15. Behold, he withholdeth the waters and they dry up. Also, he sendeth them out. And they overturn the earth. With him is strength and wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. You know what that verse says? That verse says that God is all powerful. All strength, all wisdom reside in him. And look what he says in the last part of that verse, verse 16. He says the deceived and the deceiver are his. No matter what they think, Every person on earth is under God's sovereign control and God's sovereign power. No matter what they think, they are completely under his control. Both the deceived and the deceiver are his. Now, the deceiver, we know who that is. Scripture clearly identifies that as Satan. Revelation 20, verse 1, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Satan does his work on this earth only because God allows him to do it. The deceiver is in the hand of God. Just as we see here in Job's life, God allowed Satan to do what he was doing. In the same way, God allows that in every situation. God permits him. God has complete control over him. And God will, at some point, remove Satan from this earth and cast him into the lake of fire, and he will never plague this earth again. Because, you see, he is under God's control. Verse 17. He leadeth counselors away spoiled, and maketh the judges fools. He looseth the bond of kings, and girdeth their loins with a girdle. He leadeth princes away unspoiled, and overthroweth the mighty. Again, speaking of God's awesome power, now what is he saying? He is saying God also has complete control over governments and governmental leaders. Daniel 2.21 tells us God removeth kings and setteth up kings. Whatever you think about what's going on in the world today, whatever you think about the leaders that are in power today, I want you to tell, I want to tell you God has allowed them to be there. Whether we see them as good or evil, whether we understand his purpose in allowing those people to occupy those offices, the reality is those people are in office. They exist there to do God's will on this earth. And when his purpose is served, he removes them and puts somebody else in their place. Examples of that all throughout the word of God. God has controlled the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. He set up kings that he wanted, removed those who worked against his plan. We see him working in the governments of the heathen nations, setting up kings like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, removing kings like Darius in Persia. Every aspect of the world is under God's control. All of it. Complete control. He has never lost control of it one time. He has never been surprised one time by what's happened in this world. 
And the final judgment of verse 18, look at it if you would. He looseth the bond of kings and girdeth and loins with a girdle. That will come when God's king, God's final king, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes up and sets up his kingdom on this earth. And this king will be girded with strength. He will reign forever and ever. So although it seems like this world has gone out of control, don't panic. God is in control. God will always be in control. He's always in charge. And his perfect will is always going to be accomplished, both in the affairs of this world as well as in our lives. Look at verse 20. He removeth away the speech of the trustee and taketh away the understanding of the aged. Again, every phase of life occurs by God's special design. Every challenge that comes into life is there because God has allowed it to happen. Now, some of these things occur only because we live in fallen bodies uh, and this world's sin has taken uh, its toll on us and therefore things occur. But we know God could intervene in the na- even in the natural progression of things if he chose to do that. And sometimes he does. Whether he does or he doesn't, things happen because God allows them to happen. Please hear that. Please hear that. God, things happen in this world because God allows it. He's always in charge. Verse 21. He pours contempt upon princes and weakeneth the strength of the mighty. He discovereth deep things out of darkness, and bringeth out, of, out to light the shadow of death. Here's a truth again we've already looked at. God is com- in complete control of the affairs of this life. The first part of verse 22 shows us the way God works on this earth. God's way has always been to create something out of nothing. God's way has always been to take darkness and bring light to it. That's how he made this world. There was nothing, and God made something from it. The world was in darkness, and into that darkness came Jesus Christ, the light of the world. You may be in the darkness of a trial this morning. You may may be in the darkest place you have ever been in your life, perhaps. And God, in his faithfulness, will bring comfort and peace to you in that darkness. Folks, he's there this morning. No matter what you are going through, he is right beside you in that thing. And he'll bring comfort and peace to you if you'll listen and hear him and accept what he has for you. You may be in the darkness of confusion. You may be in a situation right now where you don't know where to go, which way to take. In that darkness, you know what God has given you? A lamp to your feet and a light to your path. By the way, a lamp to your feet, one step at a time. (laughs) But that's there for you this morning. If you're confused, if you're in darkness, not knowing which way to go, look to the book. That book has the answer. That'll give a light to your path. In the midst of that darkness, God reveals truth to us. God's way has always been to take the darkest moments and bring wonderful and glorious light in the midst of that darkness. Those who have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior are in the darkness of their sin. But again, that's why Jesus Christ came. You see, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He came to bring light to those souls that are darkened by sin. It doesn't matter how much a person has sinned or how little they sin. That makes no difference whatsoever. The darkest soul ever conceived can be illuminated by the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's past saving. Nobody's past saving. All it takes is a willingness to repent of that sin and ask Jesus Christ to save them, and suddenly light comes of that darkness that existed there before he came. If you're saved here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) I don't care how dark you were before you met Jesus Christ. When he showed up, that light came, and that light has never left. Praise God for it. Notice in verse 22, he uses that phrase again, the light, uh, the shadow of death. We notice that phrase to be a reference to the time of the tribulation. That's going to be the uh, time of the darkest time this world has ever seen. 
Yet we're shown in Revelation that once God's purpose is fulfilled, that day will end and God will bring light as he establishes his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of light and life. Verse 22, he discovereth the deep things out of darkness and bringeth out to light the shadow of death. He increaseth the nations and destroyeth them. He enlargeth the nations and straighteneth them again. He taketh away the heart of the chief of the people of the earth and causeth them to wander in a wilderness where there is no way. They grope in the dark without light and he maketh them to stagger like a drunken man. Again, God is in complete control. God has power over the kings and kingdoms of this world. Paul says this in Romans 13.1. The powers that be are ordained of God. That means the powers that exist right now are ordained by God. I don't care what you think about them. They're ordained of God. They're here because that's who God wanted here. For whatever reason. And don't try to figure out the reason. That's what the Bible says. We're shown, again, that God always has a reason, always has a purpose. We simply are to require to obey what the government tells us to do because the government is established by God. Verse 24 makes it clear. When a leader ceases to fulfill God's will, God removes him from their position. Every leader in this world, saved or lost, will do God's will as far as governing their people. And God brings those people in to enhance the people. He may bring those people in to judge the people. But whatever he does, he has a purpose in doing it. Every leader in this world, saved or lost, is in God's will as far as that governing. And there are biblical examples of how when a person no longer fulfills God's will, God strips them of their power. And the final example of that will be the Antichrist. When he has completed the task for which God made him, God will remove him from power and destroy him. Everything is in God's hands. It's all in God's hands. Now, knowing all that, we're going to close. But I want to ask you a question. And I want you to hear the question this morning, folks. Please hear it. Uh, Make it real to you this morning. If God has complete control over every event that occurs in this world, if God has the power to manipulate kings, wicked kings and rulers, to do his will, regardless of what they want to do, he makes them do what he wants them to do. If he has that kind of control and that kind of power, don't you think he also is in control of whatever is going on in your life right now? Please hear me this morning. It is God's will for whatever you're dealing with right now. Even if you are out of the will of God, it's still God's will for what he's doing to try to bring you back into his will again, no matter what. What's happening in your life right now is under the complete control of God. It was not a surprise to him. It didn't shock him. He saw it before the world began exactly what was going to happen at this moment in time for you. And if God wanted to, he could change those circumstances at any moment to match up to what, what he wanted. The God you serve this morning is an all-powerful, all-knowing God, all-sufficient God, can give you whatever it is that you need, and he knows what you need before you do, and he knows what you need better than you do. (laughs) All-powerful, sovereign God, the source of all strength, the source of all understanding. And when we are in a trial, folks, please hear me, to complain and to question and to become bitter and to become angry only makes the trial more difficult. doesn't do anything to help you out. Job, in the midst of that trial he was going through, kept his eyes on the one who controlled it all. Here's what I've learned in my life. You probably learned this as well. I have very little control of what goes on in my life. I I like to think I have a lot of control when, in fact, I have very little control. (laughs) Most things happen to me, not because of me. 
What I do have control over, however, is the attitude that I take when those things occur. I have control over that. And the attitude that I choose will determine if God can get the glory from what I'm going through or if God cannot get the glory from what I'm going through. So I want to say this to you one more time before we close up this morning. I keep saying that, don't I? (laughs) When your trials come, when your trials come, please don't focus on the trial. Please don't focus on the circumstance. Please don't focus on the concern you have. Please don't focus there. When you go through a trial, if you're going through a trial right now, please hear me. Focus on the sovereign God. (laughs) Focus on him. Get your eyes there. And let everything else become dim to you as you focus on him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And there's truth in that, folks. That's Bible. We've got to let him take control and allow him to get the glory, even in the midst of our trial. Even if I hate what I'm going through and wish that had never happened, let him get the glory from it anyway. And I'm going to tell you the best way to do that is to the best way to accomplish that is just spend time with Jesus Christ. Just spend time with him. Don't let your trial get in the way of spending time with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're going through a trial, spend more time with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Increase your time. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with his people. Spend time taking your hands off your life and letting him lead your life instead. Just spend time giving all to Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, if you'll do that, as you spend time with him, as you give him total control, it'll become the most natural and easiest thing for you to do. You know why? Because he'll show you he's got all under control. I'm going to say it to you one more time, folks. No matter what you are going through this morning, he's got control of it. He's got control of it. And if you will let him control it, you'll have peace as you rest in him. You want peace this morning? Fall back into his arms. (laughs) Let him take care of it. He'll give you the peace you need, the satisfaction you need. He'll take care of all of it. Just give it, just give it to him. Let's pray.